there's a large milieu of people uh, that talk about socialism as being something on the horizon. The problem with the politics of the horizon is that you can keep moving towards the horizon. It's just going to keep moving. In the next period, I think we're going to see a lot more people looking for more radical ideas. Whatever form that new party takes, whatever form the class struggle takes as far as strike waves and the rise of new unions and new leaders, when all this starts to converge, if it's going to succeed in using all that energy to actually change society, we need a revolutionary strategy. We need a revolutionary program that transcends the capitalist system, that breaks with the private property of the means of production. There is a real sense of urgency in preparing for these events. America will never be a socialist country. country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe... The only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Welcome to this week's episode of the Socialist Revolution Podcast. My name is John Peterson. I'm the editor of Socialist Revolution magazine. You can check us out online at socialistrevolution.org. Each week, we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective, featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. With over 30 million newly unemployed, with GDP and industrial production in freefall, and more deaths due to COVID-19 than the Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars combined, let's not forget that the 2020 presidential election is still on. Now, for a few weeks there, it seemed as though Bernie and his supporters might actually pull it off. With momentum building after New Hampshire and Nevada, the anyone-but-Bernie camp was in a complete mess, and his road to the nomination, and quite possibly to the White House, seemed all but assured. Millions of people believed that the nightmare of Trump would soon be over, that universal health care, an end to student debt, and a higher minimum wage were just around the corner. Then came South Carolina. In a carefully orchestrated and calculated maneuver, the Democratic Party tops closed ranks around this year's Hillary Clinton, the preferred choice of the establishment, Joe Biden. Sanders' campaign quickly unraveled, the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic meltdown swept the country like a tsunami, and everyone's immediate attention was turned away from electoral politics. Then, on April 8th, after a long and electrifying campaign, Bernie Sanders conceded defeat to the Democratic Party machine and suspended his campaign to become the party's presidential nominee. A few days later, he rubbed salt in the wound by wholeheartedly endorsing Joe Biden as the nominee. A collective gasp could literally be heard as millions of Bernie supporters realized that they would, once again, be forced to vote for the alleged lesser evil or cast a protest vote for a smaller party candidate doomed to lose or sit out the election altogether because they simply couldn't stomach the options available. The long and the short of this experience is clear. The so-called strategy of reforming the Democratic Party, of forcing it to the left, of transforming it from a capitalist party into a workers' party fell flat on its face yet again. Those of us who support the ideas of socialist revolution 
recognized the significance of Bernie's campaign, of the energy he brought to millions, the role he played in putting the debate around socialism front and center in American politics. But we argued that the Democratic Party, which is neither democratic nor a party in any real sense of the word, cannot be reformed, cannot be meaningfully pushed to the left, cannot be made to serve two masters with irreconcilably opposed class interests, the capitalists and the workers. All those groups on the left who put all their eggs in the support Sanders as a Democrat basket have been left without a clear path forward, and many of their supporters are demoralized and disoriented. Now, while many of them have declared that they will not support Biden under any circumstances, the pressure to support the lesser evil will build as we get closer to November. And perhaps most importantly, these folks all helped foment illusions that real change is possible through the Democrats, and this resulted in a tremendous expenditure of energy. Others will continue to try to push left-moving workers and youth right back into the Democrats as they try to orchestrate another disappointing bait-and-switch. But millions of people have said that they simply are done with the two-party system and they are wide open. In fact, a majority in this country say that a new mass party is needed. Now, a lot of this might seem pretty harsh, but it's the truth. And we can't draw a proper balance sheet and learn the lessons of this experience if we don't start by analyzing the facts as they are. Of course, millions of Bernie supporters had honest illusions in his campaign. Their class instincts drew them to reject the Clintons and the Bidens to support a candidate who called for, quote, a political revolution against the billionaire class. But for some groups and individuals on the left, supporting candidates on the Democratic ballot line is a worked out strategy, something they allege to be something new, and most importantly, something that they claim is the only pragmatic or realistic thing to do. Now, we recently ran an article on socialistrevolution.org titled, Bernie Sanders and the Lessons of the Dirty Break, Why Socialists Shouldn't Run as Democrats. The article got quite a lot of buzz, especially among readers of Jacobin magazine. In it, the author, Kay Khan, examines the argument for the so-called dirty break, which is put forward, among others, by Seth Ackerman, the executive editor of Jacobin magazine, which, as most of you know, is the most popular left-leaning magazine in the U.S. today. On this week's live stream, we had a conversation about that article with the author. Kay is an organizer and member of the IMT in the Bay Area in California and a regular contributor to Socialist Revolution. Our aim in this discussion is to give our viewers an opportunity to compare and contrast a revolutionary, class-independent, Marxist approach to electoral politics versus a reformist, class-collaborationist approach. So here's a recording of that discussion. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Great to have you. Nice to see you. Thanks for uh, for joining us all the way from the West Coast. Um, could you start by giving us a bit of background and explain the main lines of what has come to be known as the Ackerman thesis? Sure. So the background to the Ackerman thesis is uh, the, the transformation of the DSA that occurred after Bernie Sanders' last run uh, for the presidency. 
that opened up a lot of sort of uh, unrealized potential within the left, which was channeled at that point because of the words democratic socialism into the DSA. And uh, it, the old guard, which had for years in the DSA, taken up a position openly of realigning the party, trying to reclaim the Democratic Party, uh, was in complete crisis. They, they were swept aside. Uh, the Ackerman position uh, is uh, claiming not to be a realignment position, although, you know, I, I was more generous towards that, saying, okay, they're saying it's not realignment. But if you look at it now, at least a layer of the Jackman uh, crowd, and I'm speaking particularly of the publisher, uh, seems to have clearly moved in that direction. But the Ackerman thesis, uh, to summarize it, uh, the idea is basically that it is uh, too difficult, impossible to actually set up a actual political party in, in the United States, and that uh, we can be agnostic, socialists can be agnostic about the ballot line and choose to run as Democrats, choose to run as Republicans, or choose to run as independents, that the ballot line doesn't actually uh, mean anything at all. Uh, and the rest of it really involves uh, setting up a nonprofit organization, which would be the actual party itself with uh, they claim a program. Okay, thanks. So basically, th- these these folks are saying that the electoral laws are so uh, overwhelmingly uh, stacked against the working class that we will never be able to overcome these obstacles. Uh, what would you say to people that say it's impossible to build a viable third party? And are they really saying that it doesn't matter what ballot line you run on? I mean, that is literally the claim. The claim, uh, the the argument, more or less, is that the Democratic Party or any party in the U.S. is not a party. And so far, you know, up, up until that point, that's actually correct. These are not parties. Uh, but they, from that correct premise, they draw an incorrect conclusion that uh, Demo- uh, that socialists can run uh, as any party, literally saying that they can run as any party as long as they can could put forward a program without having a party. So yeah, that that definitely is the case. And, and uh, in terms of what I'd say to those that say it's impossible to build a viable third party, you know, if you look at how that's phrased, yes, and a, a third party is a, by definition not viable. But if you look at the history of this country, we've had different um, two-party systems. And it's not always been the Democrats and Republicans. Different uh, class forces struggling um, can cause a new party to emerge. Uh, the Republican Party is a great example with, this, with the Second American Revolution, how they, from a very short amount of time from their formation, came into power. Uh, so it's definitely possible to build a party. It's, it's not easy. And uh, that really is what they're tapping into, the, the fact that it's not easy to build a party. Uh, and that largely has to do with the fact that in this country, we don't really have political parties. So it's not really a question of building a first, a second, a third party. It's a question of building an actual political party that is based on membership uh, of the working class and is, is you know, a working class party. I think that's great that you raised the example of uh, of the Republican Party. Obviously, a lot of people forget that, uh, you know, the party of Donald Trump, the Republicans, was originally the party of Abraham Lincoln. And it ended up uh, within six power, uh, six years of its formation, coming to power and ultimately waging a revolutionary war uh, to smash slavery in this country. Uh, a massive transformation that that a lot of people said, you know, back then they said, oh, the power of the slave, uh, the slaveocracy is insurmountable. There's no way we can never challenge that. This, is, this will always be a slave country. Just as Trump says, you know, the U.S. will never be a socialist country. This will always be a capitalist country. As, as Nancy Pelosi has said, the Democratic Party is a, is a, is a, is a capitalist party. I think the, the root of this, it seems to me, is that there's a lack 
lack of confidence in the working class, which is, of course, the largest class in society. It's the decisive class in uh, in modern society. It's the only progressive class in society that can take humanity forward. And and if these people are saying that uh, the electoral system can't even be changed, if, if even just the electoral structures can't be challenged, uh, you, you would I imagine that in effect they believe that fundamental social change that goes beyond that, i.e. a socialist revolution, uh, is impossible. I mean, they must believe that capitalism is unbeatable, that it will dominate us forever, or at least up until its inability to handle the climate stri- uh, crisis drives us to extinction. Is that is that a fair assessment of, of their views? That, that is a very fair assessment, I'd say. And I think it has ultimately, um, you know, the, the root of that assessment is in, in their method. Uh, explicitly, the Jacobin uh, publication is, uh, you know, their, their main theorist, Vivek Schipper, is an anti-dialectics analytical Marxist that um, it rejects the, 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 the method of Marx himself. And, uh, of course, you know, we're not going to go into full sort of detailed explanation of that, but uh, the, the lack of looking at how contradictions can, uh, can cause sudden dramatic changes, sudden ruptures, uh, is completely a part of their uh, their political program, a part of their perspectives, uh, going so far that even today, when you have all of society uh, pretty much you know in crisis across the world, uh, their program is still sticking to things like the Green New Deal. Uh, by their program, of course, to be fair, there's Jacobin the publication, and then there a tendency, or actually, frankly, multiple tendencies around Jacobin in the DSA and they, what they share in, uh, in common is this, this, that same program. And it's continuing to be the green new deal, sort of this left wing uh, sort of left progressive sort of politics. Um, and uh, not, not taking into account, for instance, that even Medicare for all can't really solve this crisis because you are leaving the biotech medical device healthcare systems just in public hands. Still, you're just, you just have a sort of more a single payer system. Uh, their approach has been a approach of, of trying to decommodify one segment after another as if that can be done piecemeal, as if you can uh, untangle capitalism piecemeal and you can make the capitalists give up one-fifth of the economy when you, you nationalize healthcare without a sharper uh, struggle uh, that raises the question of private property overall. So absolutely, I think that's fair and those two things definitely are linked. Um, they not only do they view the electoral system as unchangeable, they view it as the only way forward, only way possible is that they have to put all of their energy, all of their perspectives into electoral struggle. But to be fair, that, that is linked with some perspectives of on their part of linking with uh, class struggle with strike waves as they emerge, but never quite drawing the conclusion that uh, a wave of class struggle could be the basis of an entirely new political party that can challenge private property itself. Yeah, I mean, obviously, without dialectics, there is no Marxism. And uh, when you take a mechanical, pragmatic, uh, empirical approach, you end up mistaking the past for the perspectives for the future, i.e. You, you think that the next 10 years are going to be like the last 10 years. Well, we've seen in the last couple of months that, uh, you know, all, you know, everything can, can transform and can turn into its opposite very, very quickly. Uh, and without that 
deep Marxist analysis without historical and, and dialectal materialism, you end up with that kind of a, that kind of a, a mess, frankly, a political mess, because mistakes in theory do lead to mistakes in practice. Um, so you said that they basically they put all their energy into change through, through the ballot box. Obviously, they, they do support strikes and they do talk a lot about, uh, you know, the, the importance of the working class as a class. Um, but, but I think, as you say, the, the bottom line is that they don't see any of this struggle ultimately transcending capitalism. They want to try to reform capitalism within its limits, not, not overthrow it altogether, right? I mean, from their perspective, they would. Uh, I'm basing this off my interaction with people that you could broadly say are part of the Jacobin current within the DSA. They, they uh, at least subjectively, they want to get rid of capitalism. I think they're... Uh, they're um, uh, sort of disagreement with us is their perspective that it can, that it can be done piecemeal. Uh, they've put forward all sorts of ideas ranging from, and these are ideas that have been discredited, frankly, by history. Uh, ideas of like Andre Gores and and uh, and Miliband talking about non-reformist reforms and revolutionary reformism or re- uh, or, or revolutionary reform, something like that, where uh, they, they're providing, uh, they have sort of provided this uh, for a period. It's a justification uh, for reformism uh, itself, uh, while acknowledging the fact that the current mood among socialists, uh, this huge layer of socialists that's emerged. Since 2016, I'm saying huge relative to before, of course, uh, is not exactly for reformism. So they have to make that concession. But I think subjectively, uh, they want to get rid of capitalism. It's uh, it's just that uh, their their program, their method, uh, isn't quite up to that task. And of course, yeah, our you know your program, your method is what guides your action, guides your your plans for preparing for the future, for preparing for these events. So if, if you don't have that in the in the cards today, you're not going to have it. Uh, at hand when you need it in the future. And I think obviously the, the big irony is that nowadays we're in an epoch of counter-reforms, of austerity, of cuts, of you know massive unemployment we're talking about right now. We're talking about, I mean, after COVID-19, uh, whenever that may be, we're going to have massive deficit crisis. Uh, you know, all this printing of money, basically the, the the bailouts and everything. All that's eventually that bill is going to become is going to come due, and the working class is going to be asked to pay for it. So it's very ironic that at a time when only counter reforms are possible, reformism is is gaining a lot of support. Obviously, people don't usually wake up from one day to the next and decide, well. I want to overthrow capitalism. I want a complete socialist revolution and transformation of the world. But, um, you know, the, the thinkers of the movement, those who are laying out the strategies, uh, really, you know, it, it is incumbent upon those who are providing ideas for large numbers of people to have, you would think, a much bolder, more audacious program and perspective. And ultimately, although they might want to get rid of capitalism, if your plan doesn't actually include going beyond the limits of capitalism, if you don't even think you can transcend the electoral laws of capitalism, how are you going to get past capitalism itself? Unless they have a perspective of, of achieving this, you know, two, three hundred years from now, after the climate crisis has basically destroyed uh, what remains of uh, human civilization. I mean, that is their perspective. It's, it's, it, it, it's, and this isn't just uh, them, but just more broadly speaking, reformists that that we can come across, and I think readers of Socialist Revolution listeners uh, right now, uh, they're interested in in revolutionary socialism, and they're going to be familiar with a with a large milieu of people uh, that talk about socialism as being something on the horizon. The problem with problem the politics of the horizon is that you can keep moving towards the horizon; it's just going to keep moving. Uh, the the real challenge here is. 
the fact that uh, the 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 rise of reformism in the U.S. is pro- probably to do uh, with the fact, or reformist politics within the socialist left in the U.S. is probably to do with its inexperience to some degree. Uh, but but to some degree, it has to do with the fact that. Uh, reformists have managed to uh, be more organized than than uh, Force of Revolution or, or have a larger organization than Force of Revolution, I should say, in terms of their publication, and it's getting a wide appeal. So I think this squarely sort of goes to um, Jacobin and publications like Jacobin that put forward a reformist line and, and educate people in that in that sense. So if you see new members coming in to the DSA across the country, and Jacobin isn't everywhere, it's not some monolith either, but wherever they are present, they've done a good job of being organized within their DSA locals, and then they will absorb uh, people coming in with revolutionary ideas into the ideas, frankly, again, discredited ideas of, of Karl Kautsky. And we're not talking about the Karl Kautsky of, you know, uh, of, of, of uh, Lenin's inspiration. We're talking about the, the sort of renegade Karl Kautsky that, um, that they actually uphold. And, and they, they educate this layer of people in those ideas that uh, somehow they're still fighting for socialism while, uh, while ultimately just ceding to, to reformism. And, and that, again, is, uh, it puts the entire conversation in a position where if you actually uh, put forward socialist politics, and, and by that I mean politics which have the perspective not only of uh, the overthrow of, of capitalism, but the next phase after that being a, a classless, stateless society, that the sort of sort of politics itself, that is viewed as ultra-left. So socialism itself is ultra-left uh, in, in as far as the perspective of most of these people is, are concerned. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that reformism is a natural and normal part of the process of uh, of, of rising consciousness, especially in a country like the United States. I mean, let's let, let's not forget the the significance of this, the fact that millions of people, uh, a majority of young people, call themselves socialists. Poll after poll shows this. Millions of young people call themselves communists. Even they've moved beyond uh, socialism or any form of reformism, uh, and and they, they you know they they are open to a complete revolutionary perspective. Uh, and of course, the role of the labor leaders in this country is important, uh, and we can't forget that the the conservative role, the role of of class collaboration, of collaborating with the bosses, of of believing that what's good for the bosses is good for the workers, uh, and of basically holding back any general upsurge in class struggle, and uh, of course, of not allowing uh, or doing what they can to prevent the rise of a political expression of the working class and trying to, again, channel all that discontent into the Democratic Party. Of course, in 2016, we saw that the labor leaders failed to channel all of that into the Democrats as as they typically did. And a lot of that support actually went to Trump as a sort of, you know, screw you to the establishment, uh, to the Clintons, to the Democrats after years of of failures and betrayals, after the disappointment of of eight years of Obama, etc., um, so, so I think this is natural and normal, and we shouldn't, you know, overemphasize the the, the negative, uh, symptomatic points here. Obviously, this is this is wonderful for us. It gives us an audience to find people who do want to learn more about the differences between revolutionary and reformist socialism. But uh, I think the key part of the, the ingredient that's missing here is that while conser- uh, you know consciousness can tend to be a bit conservative, 
uh, it catches up with a bang on the basis of events, on the basis of experience. And this is precisely the piece of the puzzle that these folks seem to leave out. And that's a crucial piece of the puzzle. That's what gives us the confidence that a relatively small group of highly trained, highly educated, highly motivated individuals uh, organized uh, so that the, the whole is greater than the sum of any of our individual parts can, under certain circumstances in history, play a transformative role, a catalyzing role that can then turn that small force into a force of millions of people, a real force for real change uh, in, in this world. Um, but just want to get back to one thing you mentioned. You mentioned the sort of revival of, of the ideas of Karl Kautsky, the sort of neo-Kautskyism. And as you said, it's not the sort of earlier Kautsky who was looked to even by, by people like Lenin as, as, a, as a great Marxist. Although, of course, I think if you go back and read Kautsky, you're going to see that he has a very rigid approach, a very mechanical and undialectical approach. And it's not an accident that he eventually consciously rejected dialectics, again, leading in into that uh, that philosophical and practical dead end, but could you tell us a little bit more about this uh, this neo Kautskyism and and how it is that they think that you know examples like the German Revolution or the Finnish Revolution, which were unmitigated disasters for the working class, are somehow models for you know a so called parliamentary road to socialism. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that. They look at Chile as a model of parliamentary road, road to socialism, right? So that's that's the, it gets to the point of uh, not drawing even obvious conclusions. But but the, their their Kautskyism, uh, their Kautskyism is a neo Kautskyism. It's not even uh, as simple as I said. It's not uh, that it's the Kautsky that that sort of inspired Lenin, but rather what, what they're putting forward is they're using Kautsky's theories to actually appropriate. Um, Lenin and Trotsky. If you see a lot of, and, and by, by this point, by the way, I do want to make something clear as far as I can understand. This is not necessarily Jacobin the publication, but the political tendencies that have emerged uh, around Jacobin that have some link to Jacobin, but not a direct link in the DSA. So those are the neo-Kautskyists, to be precise. They put forward the idea that Lenin and Trotsky were Kautskyists, and Jacobin has published views like this, uh, which you know, has a germ of truth in the fact, in the sense that, that Kautsky inspired them. But they use Kautsky's uh, road to, to socialism argument, or what Vivek Chibber wrote, you know, our road to, uh, to socialism, that that article um, uh, to really uh, neutralize uh, revolutionary currents and, frankly, discredit names like Lenin, especially Trotsky, like the, within the context of the DSA. Um, the a really strange term "soft trot" uh, is used, uh, and people focus on the trot part. I don't know. I don't even know what it means to be a soft trot. Uh, but um, the the soft part is what what is really uh, important to have a look at here. They have completely taken out uh, the question of class struggle and the the victory of the working class over the capitalists and on the question of private property. Uh, from Marxism. And that essentially, I, I think, is Neo-Kautskyism in, in sort of a nutshell, is uh, a sort of, uh, you know, post-hominous appropriation of, of actual revolutionaries, uh, not Kautsky, but others, through the, through the works of Kautsky and, and changing it. And from what I've understood, it's also a uh, rather disingenuous reading of Kautsky, where they're ignoring his um, his writings uh, from a certain period to make it seem like he was actually more revolutionary uh, than he was in, the, in that period. 
Well, I'm not going to comment on the, the question of the soft trots. I think we leave that to one side for today. But, but basically what he's saying is that the, these people, they want to blunt the revolutionary edge of Lenin and Trotsky by kind of lumping them in together with Kautsky. Uh, and that reminds me a little bit of, of what I understand to be their rejection of the class nature of the state. I mean, Bhaskar Sankara, uh, in a debate I had with him uh, a few months back, basically has an, an evolutionary view of the state, this sort of abstract understanding of democracy as if social progress uh, wasn't the result of class struggle, but just through sort of gradual uh, reforms and changes. And yeah, a little nudge here and there through a strike or something like that, but ultimately uh, an evolutionary versus a revolutionary perspective on, on, on societal change. Could you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean that's. I think you phrased it absolutely correctly. And and the the most interesting part there is this this it's a simultaneous view of the state as being uh, too powerful to take on, um, uh, impossible to make inroads against. This. The when we're talking about the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, I think they correctly understand that these aren't really parties. That these are semi-state institutions. Uh, but they say that the state is too powerful for us to take those questions on. But at the same time, they think the state is weak enough that we, the socialists can come to state power uh, uh, through the, the means of the Democrat Party itself. So they definitely have a uh, a sort of class-neutral view of the state uh, where it, 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 they do view it as a tool that, that can be uh, you know, taken and appropriated by by any class. Uh, I think that actually, uh, if you take that a step further, um, and returning now to to the publication, less the tendencies around them. Sankara even went so far um, as to say recently, and he said things like this repeatedly uh, that the um, Dem- Democratic Party is is uh, preferable for socialists to the Republican Party uh, because it has a progressive wing. And uh, he's said in the past that he he views uh, his his work as being uh, you know bringing the the progressives to the left. Um, so uh, I don't know how far that's that's going to be effective. I think they're a bigger political force, and they've they've pulled uh, the entire project uh, much more to the right. But I think that question of you know party and state really does link together with the the fact that they view both as neutral instruments that they can they can take over or at least use. Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, this idea of trying to push the Democrats to the left, what, what's actually happened is they're, they're working to push the left into the Democrats. And, and now, although they're not supporting uh, Joe Biden, uh, you know, Sankara and Jacobin are not supporting Joe Biden, they nonetheless continue to argue that, you know, a third party is impossible. It can never, you know, become a first party, which is, of course, what we believe. We believe that the majority class in society, if it had its own political party, could easily be the majority party. Uh, but they, they continue to support uh, voting for Democrats down the ballot line uh, coming up in November and all the other races. So, again, still doubling down basically on this question of, of, of using the Democratic Party line um, without really, as, as you say, rec- you know, with a very contradictory position, frankly, on, you know, the state is insurmountable, the electoral laws are insurmountable, and yet somehow that insurmountable state and that insurmountable electoral setup is going to allow us to use it and take it over and and just do whatever we want with it once we're in power. I mean, I think it'd be worth commenting, if you could, a little bit about what it would have looked like if, if Sanders had actually won this thing on the basis of the Democratic Party. If he'd come to the presidency in the midst of this crisis with a party, uh, his own party, quote unquote, the Democrats, 
you know, largely against them, at least those in power, the Republicans completely against them, the, the Supreme Court completely against them, the, you know, the whole apparatus of, of, of state, the military against them. What, what did these people expect him to do? Uh, to actually pass some of these measures, which of course, you know, we support a lot of the basic reforms that he put forward. But, but what would really, you know, even those basic minor reforms, like, like, you know, universal health care, albeit Medicaid for all and not real a national health service, things like that. How would he have passed something like that if he actually had come to power? Yeah, so that, that's a very interesting question. One thing to add to, to your sort of question there, the, the analysis you put forward in the question is also the, the role of the, of the media. Uh, in, in this country, like most countries uh, that that have you know a formal democracy, the media isn't completely controlled uh, by uh, by the state nor directly controlled by parties, generally speaking. Um, but that being said, uh, the uh, there there are definitely wings of the media in this country that are the ideological arms of either the Republican or the Democratic Party. So th- that would be against him as well. So that's the full context of everything that he would be up against, and maybe a handful of supporters here or there. And because it's not through the means of a real party running on the Democrat uh, ballot, uh, you'd get you know a, a lot of unevenness in how truly with Sanders these supporters were anyway when push uh, comes to shove. And the parliamentary discipline of the uh, that we've seen the Democratic Party uh, put for, uh, put on people like AOC, for instance, who has moved more towards the right, has fired a lot of her left wing staff. Um, but that that would be would play a factor as well. But isolated within the Oval Office, they expect uh, Biden. Uh, I'm saying Biden. They expect Bernie to have rule by fiat by essentially um, you know passing one uh, ordinance after another, one decree after another. Uh, and I, I'm not quite sure what's democratic uh, about running things like that, even from a bourgeois perspective. But they they had their entire um, sort of argument hinged upon that. Of course, there's limits to what. Uh, what you can actually do uh, with disorders as a president. Uh, ultimately, uh, the question, and this is, uh, I think, the biggest point that socialists need to be thinking about right now, the question is about private property. You cannot overturn capitalist property relations. The rule of private property in uh, things like, uh, you know, how much remdesivir is going to cost if it's going to actually be a cure, how much a vaccine is going to cost, how it's going to be distributed. You can't change that. With uh, with even the uh, you know Defense Production Act, uh, the, the the Defense Production Act can can require you to uh, uh, you know produce something, but there's there's limits, uh, and then the, even if the state comes and takes it over, there's compensation given. So again, there's limits within that capitalist system uh, of what can be done, and they're never really looking to that question. And they, I mean, broadly reformists here in general aren't looking to that question of how to challenge private property. And that actually never comes up as a factor in the analysis of, uh, of Seth Ackerman. The, the, what is this party going to do that's you know, embedded as a nonprofit within the Democratic Party? What is it going to do to raise the question of, of private property? And the answer you'll get to that very, very often is that it's going to build uh, the, the socialist movement. And that, that would be ultimately what they think Bernie's victory would have done anyway, is build a socialist movement, even if he's isolated. Um, but again, that, that's sort of, these are the politics of the horizon. So they, they uh, despite the sort of severe crisis, and this is just the start of it, uh, despite the severe crisis today, their perspectives remain unchanged 
which is that a party for, for workers, that the transformation of society to move away from the, uh, you know, being organized around private property to being based on, uh, on a socialized planned economy. All of that is not something they think is achievable in our lifetimes. And we do, of course, we think socialism in our lifetimes is achievable. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important point that had Sanders come come to power, I mean, he, he could obviously pass all kinds of executive orders, and but there's only so much you can do with that. Ultimately, in the current political setup, setup, Congress controls the purse strings and where you can get the money to pay for these things. Now, we explain, of course, that the wealth is out there. The wealth has been produced by the working class over the last uh, couple centuries, over the last few decades in particular, to pay for all of these things, to reduce the work week, to allow for genuine free health care for all, education, quality housing, to rebuild the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, quality food, quality air quality. Uh, I mean, everything we can do, we, we, we've got it. Everything in our program is actually materially possible based on what the working class has created. But if you don't infringe upon the limits of private property, if you don't move to nationalize the Fortune 500, if you don't expropriate the literally trillions of dollars that these companies and these billionaires are sitting on unused just in bank accounts in the U.S. and offshore, um, then you're you're going to be nowhere. And, And that's, of course, where Bernie Sanders would have drawn the line. He would have been trapped, isolated in the Oval Office, as you said, uh, without doing that. The only way forward would have been to mobilize the working class, uh, to, to, to call for a general strike, and ultimately to, to, to fight for a complete social transformation. So why put all of your perspectives into getting into power as a Democrat when you're going to have to build, if you're going to actually do anything with that power, you're going to have to build a mass movement, a working class movement in the workplaces, in the neighborhoods, everywhere else. Uh, anyway, why not start building that kind of of a party now? And, and so that brings us to this question. I mean, we're, we're you know, it's all well and good. I, I think it's clear. We're against the Democratic Party. I think millions of young people and workers agree with us there. But that's largely a negative position. People want something to be for. What What are we fighting for, and what form do you think uh, a new workers' party, which which we call for, could actually take? So that, that's a great question. I, I want to actually add uh, one thing to what you said before answering your question, though, is the question of nationalization. They do support nationalization, but they support nationalization, um, you know, a la the UK or, or the social democracies of Europe. Uh, that means they don't support nationalization under workers' control, which is what distinguishes a revolutionary socialist um, form of nationalization from a reformist form of nationalization, which is just the state takes over. You know, we're not for the capitalist state taking over um, huge segments of the economy. That quite often is a way to float the capitalist economy so that the the question so that private property can continue, so that profits can continue. So we want we want it under workers' control. In terms of the yeah, if, yeah, sorry, yeah. Before you answer my question, just wanted to, to jump in real quick again. Just say that yeah, exactly. I mean, they might be in favor of, of nationalizing or bringing under public ownership with compensation this or that sector of the economy. Uh, basically to subsidize the, the work of the capitalists, you know, the public school system, the postal service in, in some form, the, uh, the highways, all that kind of stuff, which were, or, you know, which were basically paid for by the public in order to facilitate the movement of goods and commodities and, and workers and so on. Um, but they're not in favor of a, 
irrational economy as a whole, of a planned economy as a, as a whole, nationalizing, say, the Fortune 500 to start under workers' control, as you said, and then integrating that into a rational plan that could, again, dramatically reduce the working week and provide more than enough for everybody, not just in this country, but to begin the socialist transformation of the world, because, of course, this has to be a worldwide uh, system. And they don't have that perspective either, by the way, of, of the fact that, that you know, socialism needs to be a worldwide system. And I say they don't have the perspective because it's, it's not been stated. It's not a part of their politics. You'll see a lot of the left, their internationalism is limit, limited to, well, we'll support, uh, for instance, the Palestinian cause. We'll show up to a rally, and that's our internationalism. Or uh, for certain segments of the left, we'll support... Uh, we'll support Iran uh, against U.S. imperialism, or we'll support China against U.S. imperialism. That's internationalism. But yeah, m- most of the left, uh, even, even the, the huge segments of the left that think of themselves as revolutionaries, not to speak of the reformists, they don't uh, have this type of internationalism in mind. Uh, you, your question about uh, what form of party would take is actually you know, very important. Uh, well, the first thing about it is it's uh, who that party should include. So a lot of groups... Um, you know, that will call themselves a party and several that don't call themselves a party have a view that the uh, that a workers party means that uh, workers join their party, their party of, let's say, 200, 300, 400 people in this country. And that is completely missing a sense of, of proportion when you're not even one in a million, uh, you know, in a country expecting uh, millions of workers to join um, you directly is is not the sort of party that that you know that, that we put forward. Um, so th- clearly, that means the party itself would. Mean, the, the question isn't really do you have uh, you can join the party if you agree with everything and have the right program, um, but it's our, it, the question a question of organizing the workers into a party, and that would include people with ideas like this, of course, uh, being uh, being a part of that. Uh, but uh, and and to their credit, uh, and, and I'm speaking here of the tendencies and currents around Jacobin in the DSA. To their credit, I think they're actually pretty relatively clear on this question. Um, they uh, in the DSA, for instance, they're not putting forward the idea, "Hey, let's transform the DSA into a party." Um, they, there is a latent sort of uh, uh, desire to build a party, and it's even in, in in the platform for several people running for DSA linked with the Jacobin caucuses. Um, they, they, they do want that party. So they don't make that, mis- uh, that, that sort of incorrect assessment. We're also in agreement with them that, uh, that a party, when it's built, for them, it's going to be forever. But for us, like more urgently, uh, that party needs to be based on, ultimately, it needs to be based on the trade unions. Whether it's a question of, um, like in the UK, where uh, you know the, the Labour Party emerged out of uh, the union movement, uh, or or like Germany, uh, where it was the other way around, where the unions were uh, built up by a, a mass socialist party, whichever form it takes, and it's it's possible that um, in this country it could take that second form because there is the DSA today, which is a reference point for socialism, because the term socialism has a certain uh, traction. It could take that form, but ultimately it would need to rest upon the unions. Uh, and this is just in case listeners are wondering why I'm stressing that. Uh, if we look at the sort of recent period, we've had the collapse of many traditional workers' parties uh, across the uh, across the world, and new parties have emerged. Um, in, in most of those cases, uh, or at least in several of those cases, these parties have not been built on or based on or linked to the trade union movement. As conservative as that bureaucratic layer can be. And we're seeing in the DSA, frankly, that even in some cases, the, the labor bureaucrats 
are very critical of these reformist uh, currents that we're criticizing right now. They think these currents are going too far. But without including uh, uh, or basing uh, a party on uh, on organized labor, we've seen these new parties that have emerged very quickly collapse, lose steam, lose direction, and simply not have the same sort of impact as uh, they had the potential to have because they had to support from workers overall. To sort of summarize an answer to to your question, what sort of form could it take? Uh, Ultimately, it would need to be built on uh, on a on a workers uh, sort of uh, organized power, which in this country is only the unions, um, and of course we understand that unions can be conservative around that. And finally, uh, to link it to the rest of our conversation, that party uh, would need to have a program of revolutionary socialism that uh, again raises that question of, of private property, uh, talks about getting a workers' government, not so that we can run a government. Uh, but a workers' government to raise the question of private property, uh, which is ultimately the root of all, uh, root of the crisis uh, today. It's the root of uh, the the challenges the working class faces. Is the that a small layer appropriates everything? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's uh, it is hard to predict exactly what form that party is going to take, but but it's clearly going to have to be a convergence of of different social working class struggles uh, and and of union struggles ultimately. I mean. Uh, the 13 million or so workers that are organized in the AFL-CIO right now is a relatively small percentage of the total population. But if you look at the sectors that are unionized, if those just those 13 million workers went on strike, uh, the complete shutdown of the country. I mean, we've seen that what COVID-19 has done in terms of shutting down the economy. And the reason it shut down, it's not the virus. It's because the workers are not going to work. They're not actually moving things like they normally do because of the, the, the threat of the, of the virus. And, and obviously we support, uh, measures that are taken to protect the health of workers. And, and obviously we think that frontline workers in particular should be giving ac- extra protections and, and extra wages and that there should be a lot more of them so that the, the burden doesn't, doesn't fall on, on a small handful of people. But but bottom line is we need the labor movement. Uh, and I think we're going to see in the next period, uh, as we've seen already with some of the wildcat strikes taking place around uh, the COVID-19 virus, you know, in Amazon and Instacart and elsewhere, you're going to see new layers of the class coming on board that can infuse the labor movement, the organized labor movement with all the power that it has, with new energy, with new vitality, with uh, new leaders. Uh, and ultimately, the current labor, labor leaders are going to either have to move genuinely to the left or they're going to be have to push be pushed aside altogether, and I think we're going to see that process accelerated in in the next period. Uh, but a, a qu- one question I have then is, I mean, so is it you know you mentioned all these little groups that think that they're, they're launching the you know mass party of the working class? I mean, is it to, the task of revolutionaries to try to force these events to actually build a genuinely mass working class socialist party? Because I think if we look at history, it shows that truly mass parties only emerge from mass events, from mass movements, from mass organizations, including the unions, as we've said. But the question then becomes, what do we do with those mass forces that are moving in a left or even revolutionary direction? How, how, how do you help channel all that energy into the actual transformation of society? Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting question that 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 had a lot of nuance even in it. I want to continue with that nuance. So, is it the task of revolutionaries to build a mass socialist party? If you're an individual revolutionary that's organized at, in, a, in a revolutionary organization, and you're a member of a union, you should definitely um, you know talk about the fact that that the unions should stop stop giving their money to the Democrats, and and it should be channeled towards a new party. If you're if you're non-unionized worker. 
Um, you can play a role. You can play the role of, of building up a, a future leadership uh, for a mass party. But the 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 point here is the the stress here is mass party. And mass doesn't mean one or ten people. It doesn't mean a hundred or a thousand people. Uh, in this country, we're well over three hundred million people. A mass of people here is hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and and we know we're, we're not uh, suggesting that this is going to be spontaneous. Uh, that this is going to emerge out of nowhere. Of course, it's going to be built on on class struggle. And ideas play a very important role in that class struggle. Uh, but I think uh, revolutionary socialists need to keep a sense of proportion uh, about uh, what they can actually achieve uh, in, in this current period uh, with with the numbers that, that we have on the revolutionary socialist side. Um, so our task then is is of course to to build up that leadership and and participate and um, and and bring our ideas to the struggles as they're emerging and and be a part of those struggles if we're positioned to be in those struggles. Not you know, of course, shout out them from the outside. So uh, I, I hope that answers your question. But it's, of course, you know, the, I just wanted to make sure that anyone listening understood uh, no one's suggesting that revolutionary should uh, should sit aside. But uh, just, again, the stress here is have a sense of proportion. And uh, we need to be careful about um, understanding what uh, what role we are to play, not in what can be achieved, because the mass socialist party can be achieved. It's just we need to be clear about our role and the role that we need to play as a working class as a whole. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think you're saying that, you know, history is going to do 99% of the heavy lifting for us, so to speak. Uh, you know, the, the crisis of the system itself, its inability to provide a quality of life, a good quality of life for people, not just around the world, which obviously has always been the case, but, but even here in the United States, there's millions and millions of people in poverty, millions of children that go to bed hungry, uh, hundreds of thousands of homeless people. Uh, it's those kinds of things accumulated over time that are going to, you know, flip the switch, so to speak, and 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 force millions of people then to move in that direction. And so, if if the you know if history does ninety nine percent of the work, we're talking about that one percent, so to speak, preparation to get the full convergence of factors together, both objective and subjective, that can allow for a successful socialist revolution. Um, I, did, I did have a quick question, though. You touched on this earlier, but what role do you think DSA can and should play in putting forward this perspective? And also, what role uh, should Jacobin or could Jacobin be playing, given its relative prominence on the U.S. left? Sure, and, and, and those are both great questions. So the, so the DSA is actually uh, uniquely positioned uh, of all socialist groups uh, in the country, and, and, and that's largely because it's it's very different than most socialist groups. It's more of a, a phenomenon that's emerged of of workers sort of moving into uh, a an organization because it's gained some some critical mass, and that that mass uh, critical mass portion is sort of important there. The role the DSA uh, should play is is not to say, hey, we are the party, come join us, because even with, I think uh, DSA is claiming 70,000 people now, active and inactive combined. Um, so those aren't small numbers for uh, the the American left within the, the American left history. Um, that being said, that's still not enough people to be the basis of a party. So we can't have, the, the DSA shouldn't become a sect where they just say, we are the, we are the party, you should join us. The role the DSA can and should play is that it has links to uh, uh, labor unions. It has links to rank and file workers. Uh, it has several uh, sort of even labor leaders involved in it. It has it, it has certain influence and clout in society. And the DSA can and should 
launch a campaign to to form a mass socialist party independent of the Democrats. And that is absolutely vital. And that's that's sort of linking to the conversation we're having just before this about the sense of proportion that's needed. The, the proportions are a bit different with the DSA. They can play that role um, and, and should. The DSA is absolutely positioned to do so. Uh, as far as Jacobin is concerned, uh, there, there's only so much we can, we can uh, suggest because of the sort of editorial line of the paper itself about what it should do but it, it, let's let's say that we had influence on that the editorial line we i would suggest they do the same thing uh, they they obviously we're not going to ever come to agreement uh, on on questions like you know Karl Kautsky or uh, or or the idea that uh, there is a parliamentary road to socialism uh, that being said it i think Jacobin should be uh, if if they're actually going to follow through on the Ackerman uh, thesis the Ackerman blueprint um you know, I, I was much more charitable about this when it came out. It seems to actually want uh, the establishment of a party uh, and have a dirty break. Um, uh, and so it should actually put forward the idea now that, that people should leave the Democratic Party, that we sh- they should prepare to uh, form a new party. Uh, but it's not doing that, which is why I'm less charitable about uh, about this entire idea now, um, it, because it's been two election cycles uh, and it's still exactly where it was. Um, in, in fact, even worse, they, um, you know, they're not quite channeling people to, to vote for Biden. But like you said earlier, uh, definitely down ballot. They're, they're still trying to get people to uh, you know, stay in line with uh, working within, uh, within the Democratic Party system or use that ballot line. Uh, the, the other uh, point uh, about what the, the role Jacobin um, could play it also links back to the DSA itself. Again, I want to be clear. A lot of times, we, a lot of people will speak of Jacobin as being directly linked with the caucuses, like Red and Roses within the DSA that that are linked with it quite often. But uh, they have some influence. That that part also is very important. In, in that same role within the DSA, Jacobin should be um, leading that question. If they genuinely believe that an eventual break from the Democrats is desirable. Uh, that should be front and center right now, and it should be on a line of class intransigence, not uh, not confusion around uh, whether Democrats should be supported. So uh, sh- the short answer is the, uh, they need to. It's a managing editor of Jacobin that wrote this article. I, I think it's time they reevaluate it uh, and and move on from it. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, really, after Bernie's second capitulation, uh, what better time is there to make that break? I mean, you know, if, if their perspective was always, well, this is just a temporary tactic, even if we disagreed with it, uh, it would seem that doubling down now is one of the worst possible things they can do. Uh, so I think that's a really good point about the way that DSA and Jacobin could use the platform that they have and the relative size that they have to put forward the idea for a new class independent mass working class socialist party in this country. I think that would resonate a lot, especially a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, I guess a month ago now, uh, when Bernie, uh, you know, conceded this, uh, this second time, I think it could have had a big, big impact. But again, as we said, it's natural that people would pass through a sort of reformist phase, and it's natural that a publication like uh, Jacobin, which bases itself on a sort of neo-reformism, uh, reformism without reforms, while trying to couch it in a little bit more revolutionary language from time to time and class language, uh, would would be the largest publication. But in the next period, I think we're going to see a lot more people looking for far more radical ideas because there is a real sense of urgency in preparing for these events. Whatever form that new party takes, 
whatever form the class struggle takes as far as strike waves and the rise of new unions and new leaders uh, and the regeneration of the current unions, um, whatever form that all takes, when all this class struggle starts to converge, uh, if it's going to succeed in using all that energy to actually change society, we need a revolutionary strategy. We need a revolutionary program that transcends the capitalist system, that breaks with the private property of the means of production, that moves again to nationalize the Fortune 500 under workers' control, and to bring those ideas in an effective way, in large enough numbers, into that party, into those unions, into those struggles, into the broader layers of the working class. Again, we need highly trained, educated, and committed individuals trained in Marxist theory and class-independent methods of struggle. So could you tell me a little bit about what the IMT is doing to prepare for this perspective? Uh, To prepare for this perspective, the IMT is training up um, a layer of working class uh, people, workers, youth, uh, in the ideas of revolutionary socialism, the ideas and methods uh, of Karl Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky, uh, not just you know reading uh, them by road, but actually understanding the method behind that uh, and, and their work and, and, and applying that to our current situation. Um, so the, the the real task of the IMT uh, right now is to build up uh, a layer of leadership uh, that uh, once there's a working class party, a mass socialist party, um, to really win this, we need that party to have a, a socialist program, a revolutionary socialist program. And, and then those sorts of things aren't accidental. They do, don't just occur. Um, and uh, that's really the, the task of the IMT is, is undertaking right now, is preparing that layer of leadership uh, that when such a party emerges can, uh, can actually guide that party uh, to uh, overthrowing capitalism. And uh, it, the one thought I do want to share, just because of the thread of the, uh, the conversation so far, is quite often uh, that's a review is sort of uh, looked at as uh, not uh, really doing much. But let's look at the success of the publication Jacobin in influencing the, in the DSA. We talked about why reformism has uh, such a wide layer of attraction, despite the fact that if you look at Gen Z and millennials, survey after survey is showing their interest in revolutionary socialism, it has to do with the fact that they have a layer of people that 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 are in position across the DSA to absorb them into reformist ideas. And that's a subjective sort of fight. So the this work to prepare a layer of leadership, it's incredibly more difficult to train someone up to apply dialectical materialism as a revolutionary socialist than it is to put forward um, sort of reformist ideas. Our task then is to prepare that layer across the country so that when there is that movement that emerges, when conditions uh, are, are ripe for it, and when, when the working class is ready to move towards revolutionary uh, socialism, that there's a, a, a trained leadership uh, that can assist it in that task and be, can be a catalyst for that task. And I think, yeah, I think we should just clarify for our viewers that when we talk about leadership, we're not talking about imposing a leadership on the working class. We're talking about people who can win the leadership of the working class when the interests and the consciousness of the working class inevitably are pushed by events to coincide with the revolutionary program and perspectives that we're putting forward uh, so that we can just take things that, that, that last couple of steps and, you know, push the boulder of rotting capitalism over the edge uh, of of the cliff, so to speak, at the last minute. And I think it's also important to add that the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency, is doing this worldwide. And that in in any country around the world, if the working class comes to political power and issues a, a revolutionary internationalist call for world revolution and for defense of that revolution uh, and so on, it's going to transform the whole world. Um, you know, the, the the bourgeois used to be 
scared about the domino effect. Uh, and and there, there, is, there is a point to it. I mean, in the sense that if one country gives the example of, you know, cutting the work week by half and having universal employment and free health care and, uh, you know, and eliminating all debt and good quality housing, etc. I mean, what worker around the world, especially as wired as everybody is today uh, with the Internet, is not going to look at that and think, hey, that sounds pretty good. Why aren't we doing that in, in, in our country when we have, you know, just as much or even more wealth uh, with which to actually provide those material changes in our lives? So, um, yeah, with that, any, any final thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people should go to socialistrevolution.org, um, click on our program, read through it. And if they agree with that program, they agree with the analysis in the program, have a look at our COVID-19 program as well. If you agree with that, um, you should you should join um, the IMT. Well, thank you. I think that's a great way to end the show. Uh, we had a lot to talk about today, but uh, thanks, Kay, for joining us. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. If you liked what you heard today, please uh, like it on, on social media, subscribe and share with your friends, your coworkers. And again, as, uh, as was said, be sure to visit socialistrevolution.org for the latest news and analysis from a revolutionary socialist perspective. And of course, to join and get involved with the IMT. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep fighting the only fight that's worth fighting, the fight for socialism in our lifetime. <laughs>